Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. As you go there, I'll begin with uh, this story that happened to A.J. Gordon. A.J. Gordon was a pastor uh, in Boston in the 1800s. One day as he came up to the church, he saw a young boy in front of the church carrying a very rusty cage with several birds in it fluttering nervously. Gordon comes up to the boy and, and he says, son, where did you get those birds? The boy replied, well, I found them out in the open field and I trapped them. Well, what are you going to do with them? He asks. He says, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play with them some and, and then I'll just feed them to my old cat at home. When Gordon heard this, he offered to buy the birds. And when he told him that he'd like to buy them, this young boy, he exclaimed, Mr. You don't want them, they're just old wild birds and, and they can't even sing very well. Gordon replied, I'll give you $2 for the birds and, and the cage. And the boy said, okay, but you are, sir, making a very bad bargain. After another exchange, they exchanged funds. He ran away with two coins and the pastor, Gordon, he walked around to the back of the church property, opened up the door to the cage and let the bird soar into the skies. The next Sunday he comes up for his sermon, he brings up the empty cage and he uses this as an illustration for his sermon about Christ coming and saving the lost. And he says this, that boy told me that these birds were no singers. But when I released them, they winged their way heavenward, and it seemed to me that they were singing, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. You know, this is really the theme of Romans chapter 8. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. You know, there's an old hymn uh, that goes something like this, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Why? Why is that the theme of, of Christian life? Well, because that's the fact. That's, that's the only fact that you ultimately believe is that you are redeemed. You have been set free. You have been set free, friends, to live for your Savior. And in setting us free, God makes sure that we have what it takes to live for him. How? He sends us his spirit. That's the theme of Romans chapter 8. He gives us his spirit, the presence of God himself. And that spirit ultimately points us forward. He drives us forward. He is the ultimate sin killer as we find here in this passage, enabling us to deal with sin on a regular basis. I want us to read Romans 8. We'll begin with verse 1 because... Once again, this is where we need to go back to verse 1 of chapter 8, and we'll read all the way through verse 14, and we will just make a few observations. We only have two verses here this morning, verses 12 and 13. But let's begin our reading in verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead would also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And here are our verses. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. These are sons of God. Well, this morning, here is our central theme from verses 12 and 13. As believers in Christ, we are indebted to God and enabled by his spirit to put fleshly deeds to death. Believers in Christ are indebted to God and enabled by his spirit to put to death fleshly deeds. I want us to consider really two points here. The redeemed of God, those who have been set free, verse one, those who incur no condemnation this very moment, the redeemed are indwelled by the spirit and as those who are indwelled by the spirit, they maintain two things, they maintain right perspective and right practice, right perspective and right practice. I want us to look at the perspective first because this is, this is where it all begins, your perspective, your mindset, your attitude, right? It directs everything that you do. Your perspective. And here's your perspective. Number one, I owe sin nothing. I owe God everything. I owe sin nothing. I owe God everything. Notice with me at verse 12, we have this transition here. So then, brethren, Paul says. He's now transitioning from this exposition, right, to exhortation. He, he, he wants to gather us, so to speak, and says, brethren, here is the reality of what I just said. He is transitioning from focusing on the grace given to the believer to focusing now on the obligation incurred by this recipient of grace. He continues to focus on the church. He focuses on believers, <clears throat> a contrast he introduced in verse 11, <clears throat> or in verse 10, if Christ is in you, or verse 9, for instance, however, you are not in the flesh. He was just describing those who are in the flesh, but then he, he turns to them and says, brothers, you are not in the flesh. 
And he calls them brethren here in verse 12. Brothers, believers in Christ. And he's setting that up for what he will get into in the following verses, namely sons of God. Brothers, we're all part of God's family. Sisters, we're all part of God's family. We are sons of God. Christians, he says, are those who are possessed by the Spirit. Those who possess the Spirit. The Spirit resides in them, as we looked at last time, last Sunday in verses 9 through 11. Then the Spirit renovates them today. They have life. Believers are no longer, verse 12, under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Let's look at this word a little bit more. Obligation. Some of your translations say debt, right? Indebted, no longer indebted to the flesh. Well, three times in the book of Romans, Paul uses this word. First time is in Romans chapter one, verse 14, where he says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians. In other words, he is saying that I am indebted to these groups of people to preach the gospel to them. I have to do it. Why? Because the gospel has been revealed to me and I've been appointed for this ministry. Therefore, I cannot escape, but I am obligated or indebted to do it. Now, second mention is here in verse 12 of chapter 8. And finally, in 1527, Paul speaks of Christians in Macedonia and Achaia who felt indebted to the saints in Jerusalem, and so they made financial contribution to them. The Gentiles there, they felt indebted because they were blessed with spiritual things, namely the gospel that was sounded forth from them. Now they feel indebted to offer up financial, physical, material things for the, supports of, for the support of the saints in Jerusalem. So obligation is debt, paying what's owed to another. And Paul says here, we who have been freed from sin, verse 2 of chapter 8, we owe sin nothing. We owe flesh nothing. We are not in debt to sin because, friends, that's been paid for. It's all taken care of. Here's an illustration that might help. We all understand the concept of debt, right? Um, Debt, for instance, house debt, mortgage or car debt, student debt, credit card debt. We all know what it's like to be indebted. Many of us today are paying off our mortgage debt. We send monthly payments in order to keep our account current with hopes that one day, whenever that comes, we will sign this final check, we will mail it in, and our debt will be paid off right? Or a car payment. Or maybe someone racked up huge credit card debt. And most of your paycheck is going to that credit card company. And you feel bad. But you're waiting for that one day when you will send in your final paycheck. Now, think about this. How many of you have plans to keep sending these checks to your mortgage company once your house is paid off. Anybody? I mean, you've been doing it for 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. You just, you're used to it. You just keep sending them, right? How many of you are planning to do this? After you pay it off, right? Pay off your car or your student loan. Do you keep sending these things? No. 
You do not. Why? Well, because the bills are not coming anymore. That's why. The debt is taking care of. It's all paid off. Well, friends, your debt was paid off in full. You have been redeemed. That's what Paul writes to Titus chapter 2, verse 14. All the charges against you have been paid off. They've been dropped. The certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you, according to Colossians 2.15, has been nailed to the cross. It is no longer valid. And all the requirements of the law have been fulfilled in you, Romans 8.4. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, did he do a partial payment of debt? Was it just a 20% down payment for your sin debt, or did he pay the whole thing in full? No, he paid the whole thing. He paid the whole thing. And because he paid the full thing, rescuing you from sin and resurrecting you to new life, not only do you owe sin nothing, but now you don't owe your flesh the satisfaction to live in this sin either. You are not under obligation to live according to the dictates of the flesh. You are not enslaved to sin. Go with me to Romans chapter six. Paul is basically making exactly the same point he had already made in Romans six. In Romans six, six, Paul says this, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Three times Paul says, The same thing for emphasis. What is that? He says, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are freed from sin. And then he says, so then consider yourself. So then consider yourself dead to sin. And that's why he says in verse 12 of chapter 8, brothers, friends, Christians, you are under obligation not to the flesh. The flesh is our old nature, right? It's this old man that we are born with according to Adam, Romans chapter five. And to live according to the flesh means to live under the dominion of the old nature, according to what it desires, which is self-centeredness, right? It is living in opposition to God and not subject to the word of God as verse seven and eight indicates. This person who sets their minds on the things of the flesh They're hostile to God. And Paul wants these Roman Christians and us by extension to have the right attitude. He wants us to have the right perspective. You are no longer in that flesh. And so back in Romans 6, he says, therefore consider yourself dead to sin. You don't owe sin anything. This this word consider is a mathematical term. It means to calculate It means to count something as true, to to consider and to take some factors into account and believe them because they are true. Regard yourself as dead 
to yourself as dead to your sin and alive to God. You do not have to send in payments to the flesh because you have been set free. Isn't that glorious? You don't have to do it. Everything is taken care of. And notice something in in verse 12. Paul seems to break off mid-sentence at the end of the verse, leaving us to, to supply what's implied. In other words, he says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation, and then not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, and the, the implication is, but we are under obligation, not to the flesh, but we are under obligation to the Lord. We owe our sinful flesh nothing, but we owe absolutely everything to the Lord. Why? Because he had redeemed us. He had loved us when we were first sinners, Romans 5.8. He sent his son for us who secured peace between us, Romans 5.1. And we are no longer under condemnation, Romans 8.1. He put his spirit in us. We now belong to him and we owe it all to his grace. We owe it all to his grace. I want to caution us here to think properly about this debt. We are not repaying anything to God. We are not repaying anything to God. We are not paying him back for what he had accomplished for us. As if it's a fair exchange as if we're just borrowing. He, he let us have something, and now we finally accumulated something, and we're like, well, Lord, here we go. We're paying off our debt. That is not what we're doing. No, we owe a debt of love and gratitude in response to what he has done. Think about this. God's grace first, our gratitude next. Grace gives way to gratitude, our gratitude. Isn't that what John says in 1 John, right? We love, why? Why do we love? Because he first loved us. Gratitude. Grace, he loved us first. Gratitude, we love Christ back. Matthew Henry said, being delivered from so great a death by so great a ransom, we are greatly indebted to our deliverer. We, we sing this song, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Beloved, we need to have the right perspective, because having the right perspective is crucial. It is critically important. No matter, friends, think about this, no matter what you're doing or you're going to do, whether that's going on a vacation or, or you're battling sin, no matter what you're doing, how your mind is set about what you're doing or what you're planning to do changes everything about how you're actually going to execute that task. Let me give you this illustration. I, I heard this illustration before and it was really helpful to me. Imagine a screen like this one here, split screen, right side and left, 
or your left and your right. You have two gardeners, two gardeners. On your left is a guy who's gardening. He's pulling weeds. He's cultivating the soil. He is dressed in an orange jumpsuit. His ankles are chained. Over his shoulder is a uniformed man on the horse with a shotgun across his lap. The man on your left is gardening. On the right side, you have a gardener. He's gardening. He's pulling weeds. He's cultivating the soil. But he's wearing Bermuda shorts and Hawaiian shirt. He has a new band of gold on his ring finger. Over his shoulder, you can see a bride, his bride, coming with a frosty glass of lemonade. He too is gardening. Two gardeners doing exactly the same thing. Pulling weeds, they're cultivating the ground. But you would agree that these two guys are worlds apart, right? Would you not? They are worlds apart. In their mind, they're thinking radically different thoughts as they go about their same task, same thing. Gardening, pulling weeds, cultivating the ground. Their mindset is different, not because of what they do, but because of their circumstance that they find themselves in. Friends, this is exactly the same way. This is what we have in verse 12 of Romans chapter 8. This is what Paul and the Lord is calling us to. Brethren, have the right perspective. You are under obligation, not to the flesh. You are prisoner no more to live according to the flesh. You're no longer in debt to the flesh, so stop living for it. Live for the Lord out of gratitude and love. This perspective, this right perspective, this gospel perspective, this biblical perspective will give way to your proper practice. As one who is indwelt by the Spirit, we need to maintain this perspective. Gospel, think about what happened. Think about who you became by faith, the flesh has no claim on you. Live for God as a debtor to his grace. And equipped with this perspective now, we need to then maintain the right practice. Believers in Christ are indebted to God. And second, they are enabled by God to put to death the deeds of the body. Which brings us to the second point, the right practice the right practice. And here's the practice. I rely on the spirit who kills fleshly deeds. I rely on the spirit who kills fleshly deeds. Here's a very important point here that, that Paul wants to emphasize for us in verse 13. I want you to read this again. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die 
But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We who have been given grace do not act independently in sanctification. You know, oftentimes we we get this wrong idea that we are saved by faith and then we are perfected by works. And this is exactly what Paul was dealing with in, in the epistle to Galatians. No, you're not, is his whole argument. You are saved and you are sanctified by faith. Our independence, friends, we, we think that we're somehow, I don't know, independent now, like we just, we just do things for the Lord, but our independence got us into this trouble to begin with, with Adam and Eve. We are not independent. Salvation is God's gift from start to finish. He grants everything by faith, right? Justification. Redemption and sanctification, it's a, it's a full package. It is by the Spirit. It is by the Spirit that Christians kill fleshly deeds, verse 13. And it is by the Spirit that they are led, verse 14. It is the Spirit who moves us to affirm by faith and to cry out, Abba, Father, in verse 15. It is the Spirit who does that. And it is the Spirit who gives us assurance. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. It is all by faith. So believers practice, the right practice is to rely on the Spirit. It is to walk by the Spirit as we read from Galatians chapter 6 because it is the Spirit who deals with our flesh. Now how do we, how do we, rely on the Spirit? How do we know that we are, we are led by the Spirit? Well, we, we turn, first of all, we turn away from sin. This is the result. We, we turn away from sin. Because once again, sin doesn't characterize us any longer back to beginning of verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Who lives according to the flesh? The unbelievers. They live according to the flesh. Those who constantly obey the lusts of their old sinful nature, Paul says they must die. Or in the future here, they will die. In other words, if you continue to live according to the impulses of your flesh and and there's no renovation that the indwelling spirit accomplishes in you, then there's a good chance that the spirit is not in you. And as a result, your future is death. Your future is sure death. Not resurrection that he spoke about in verse 11. Those who have the spirit, even though their body is dead, they will become alive. Their bodies will be resurrected to eternal glory, to everlasting life. And and he iterates that again at the end of verse 13. Those who put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, they will live. They will experience eternal life, but not so with the other group of people, with the unbelievers. So the first part of verse 13, it really describes unbelievers. It is not a description of us, of believers. Our relationship to sin changes when the spirit is present. Believers have this right perspective to turn away from sin, they say no to sin. They say no to sin. 
Because isn't that what Paul wrote to Titus in, in Titus 2, verses 11 and 12? He says that the grace of God has appeared, and this grace that has appeared, it teaches us to deny, to say no to ungodliness, right? Isn't that what he said? Absolutely, that's what he said. And we need to remember, friends, this is all a gracious act. It's all about grace, Everything that Paul writes about here in Romans 8 is from this premise that you have experienced grace and that you are forgiven and that you are in union with Christ. But the consequence of being in this union with Jesus Christ is that you turn away from sin. You turn away from sin. When sin enters our mind, when it's maybe just a thought when it's maybe just a temptation to commit something that dishonors your Lord, at that very point, we learn to say no. Why? Because we are no longer slaves to that. We have been freed, so we don't obey. We don't obey. And that's what it takes sometimes, right, for us to just say no. Why? To remind ourselves, who's our Lord? You're not our Lord. I'm not supposed to be submissive to this. I don't work for you anymore. I work for the Lord. Back in Romans 6, if you would go there with me, we stopped at verse 11, but look what, how Paul continues on and, and he says, since this is so, since you have been freed from sin, since you have been enslaved to God, verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from, the, from dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And the reason why we can obey these commands here is because, verse 6, we are no longer slaves to sin. It's all intertwined. Paul, uh, Peter wrote to the scattered believers in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, beloved, he's writing to believers, and he says, beloved, I urge you, I urge you as aliens, aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. I urge you to abstain they wage war against your soul because you are no longer what you used to be. You are at war with these things now because you belong to another master. There are certain signs, friends, that indicate life. And there are signs that are indicative of death. And here's the mark of the believer, one who's indwelled by the Spirit is that they have a tendency to turn from sin. Those who find rest in Christ, something that we have been preaching over and over and over again, those who find rest in Christ are those who see sin to be what the Lord hates. They see sin as that which only defiles and that which brings ruin to everything in their life. So they run away from sin. But they not only do that because, friends, flesh cannot overcome flesh. You cannot overcome your sin. 
If anything is left to the flesh, uh, there is no sanctification. That's why at the very beginning, I mentioned that it is the spirit. It is the spirit. So therefore, you not only run away, but you turn to the spirit. Turn to the spirit. That is why the main thought is here at the very end of verse 13. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is by the spirit. The resources for this battle are not our own. The resources for this battle are found in the strength and power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body, the the deeds that are prompted by sin, right? You do it by the means of God, the Spirit. That's why in Galatians, if you caught that at the very end of the passage that, that Jan read, Galatians 5, 25 says, if we live by the Spirit... What does that mean? We are alive by the Spirit. We have life in us, right? If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The Spirit is the ultimate sin killer. But here's the paradox. Look look at the text. But if by the Spirit you are put into death, the deeds of the body, You do it, and you do it in such a way that it is the Spirit who does it. Really, that's the difference between the life of the believer and the life of the unbeliever. The life of one who is walking in the Spirit and those who are just going after self-help programs. And you might be thinking right now, sitting in, You might be wondering, okay, Tim, the Holy Spirit is in me. I have faith in Jesus. I'm crucified with with him, and, and sin no longer has power over me. So you tell me how come I seem to be completely incapable of overcoming fill in the blank. Right? And, and how many times do we find ourselves just broken over sin and we just can't seem to get over this or that until so we do it over and over and over again? You might be sitting here this very moment and you might be jealous of others' possessions or success and you might be holding a grudge. You might be thinking about how to string some lies together so that you can cover up something else that you lied about. You could be struggling with lust and and looking at porn, whether you're single or married. You might be struggling with outbursts of anger and you hate it all. You have passion, hatred against it. And I think we can all all relate. What do we do? How do we overcome these things? And, And I think for us as believers, friends, the flesh, the enemy wants you to despair. He accuses you. Right? This is what your sinful nature wants you to do, but the gospel promises that we, friends, are victors in Christ. We are able to live according to the Spirit. By the Spirit, we are able to overcome temptation and not give in to sin. Friends, we only kill sin, that which is overcome by Christ. That's why we also sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin in us canceled sin 
he breaks the power. He breaks their hold. He sets the prisoner free. Now, how does, how does he do it? What are we called to do? And there are a couple of thoughts here that I want to share and something that Paul already alluded to in Romans chapter 8, for instance. Number one, how do you do it? You set your mind on the spirit. Verse 8 or verse 5 of chapter 8, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit set their mind on things of the spirit. You have a completely different mindset, something we discussed a few weeks ago. When temptation to sin comes up, you, you don't merely say no to sin, but you set your mind, you direct your spiritual mindset, your, your faculties on the things of the spirit. Why? Well, because you're in the realm of the spirit. You're not in the flesh anymore. But, but it doesn't happen passively. There's a strategy involved. Thinking about the things of the spirit. Meditate on the things of the spirit. What are the things of the spirit? You might be wondering. What should you be focusing on when you're in the heat of the moment, when you're dealing with temptation, when you're wanting to overcome, when you want to please the Lord, what do you do? Well, believers set their mind on the things of the spirit. What am I supposed to be setting my mind on? And so Paul here uses exactly the same phrase, the things of the spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter two. I want you to go there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter two, I just wanna read a few verses in order to just uh, describe what, what this means. We'll, we'll begin with verse one, one through five. And when I came to you, brethren, Paul writes, I did not come with superiority of speech or with wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. And then in verse 14, he says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The things of the Spirit, what are they? Well, in verses 1 through 5, here we find out that the things of the Spirit is the Word of God. It is Paul's testimony of God, as he says. It is his message. It is his preaching. It is the gospel that he came bringing to the Corinthians. So those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit, they set their minds on what the Spirit revealed through the apostles, namely the Word of God, the gospel of God, and the promises of God. And that is why it is so important to be in the Word of God. It is no surprise then that all over the Scripture we find exhortation for the people of God to be in the Word of God. That is why it's so important. Jesus said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. Peter, St. Peter that we quoted before, he writes to the same Christians who are scattered all over the place and he encourages them and exhorts them and he says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Paul writes to the church in Colossae in 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, hide it. Right, that's what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 
your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. What are you hiding in your heart? Right? Gospel truths. That Jesus set you free. That you are no longer debtor to sin. That you are empowered by the Spirit to live for Jesus. But, but friends, here it is. In addition to setting your mind on the word and constantly rehearsing these things, there's a very important element on relying on the spirit to kill your sin, and that is faith. Faith. So that your faith, we read in, Col- in uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. In addition to setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, you need to be hearing and you need to be believing the truth of the gospel. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Paul is very blunt with Galatians. He's very honest. He is hurt by this church. He is wondering what they're doing when they step away from the gospel, and he says in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, he who, so then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Faith justifies you and faith, faith perfects you. It is the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. Did you catch that in verse 2? Paul asked the church, were you saved by the works or by faith? And the obvious answer is by faith. And friends, we are then sanctified. We are sanctified the same way we are justified by faith. We must continue to hear and we must continue to believe. That's the way that God plans to sanctify us, by hearing the gospel truths and to continue to believe them, trusting God to do the work in us through his spirit, Here's the, here's the thing we must understand that our sanctification is not just merely conformity to certain rules. Do this, don't do that. But our sanctification is the supernatural work of the indwelling spirit of God that we may love God. And so what is the exhortation for us who are struggling with sin, friends? We must call upon the spirit in faith we believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that you're justified? Call upon the Spirit in faith that He would equip you and empower you to hate your sin and to love righteousness. So the right practice then is to rely on the Spirit who kills flesh to turn from sin and to turn to the Spirit by setting your minds on the things of the Spirit, by hearing and believing His Word And then there's another, you know, quick side note. 
for us to consider, go back to Romans chapter 8, and I think this is important, is that we turn to one another also. He says, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death. He, he's addressing the church, friends. He's addressing a congregation of believers. He's not just addressing singular individuals. And I think this is kind of a, has a practical implication for us that we are to be accountable to one another. The putting to death happens in the context of the church as we relate to one another. Friends, our, our private sins that we entertain, they have consequences and they often affect the church at large. They affect the entire body. What we do impacts other people. And I think one of the greatest blessings in our Christian life is that when God gives us people, when God gives us friends, or maybe a single friend who you trust, with whom you share even the most difficult things, and know that he or she will be honest with you, will confront you when it needs to be confronted, will pray with you, will walk with you. Friends, we, I think, need to be accountable to one another because the Spirit, for a reason, puts us in a community of believers. does not lead us away to live a hermit kind of lifestyle. The believer in Christ, to sum up, is indebted to God and is enabled by his spirit to put death to death fleshly deeds. And here's the thing, as, as we wrap this up, think about why do you do what you do? You know, we always ask, and we must ask, why do I do? Why do I serve? Why do I put sin to death? Why? Your motive for putting to death sinful deeds is that the Son of God loved you and gave himself up for you. That's what Paul says. And the life, right, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me, Galatians 2.20. That's why he lived this way. Gratitude in response to grace. You want to honor and you want to glorify your Savior, your Master who owns you. So instead of thinking practically, you know, my anger is causing problems with my kids, so therefore I kill my sin. Instead of thinking this way, I must think, you know, my anger is dishonoring the Lord who gave his son for me, and so I want to kill these sins. And here's the problem, promise here for us. All who are indwelled by the Spirit, they will live this description here, right, this account here is a description of, of the one who has faith and the one who's justified by faith and the one who's sanctified by faith. The promise is every single believer, they will live. Why? Because of the presence of the Spirit in them. Paul is describing this reality. It's currently taking place right now in you. You are being perfected. You are being sanctified by the Spirit. He is putting to death the sins of the body. And so we must rely on him. That's why in Romans 6, he ends this chapter with verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. What's the benefit? Resulting in sanctification. There's a result. If you've been set free, the result, the benefit is 
sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. He will repeat this chain towards the end of Romans chapter eight, that if this is true of you, if God's predestination is true of you, then glorification is most definitely true of you. He doesn't fail with his children. What Christ starts, he completes, friends, and we need to trust that. He is not like that contractor who gets excited about a project, begins to build, pours foundation, puts up three wall, and then recession hits, and then he walks away from it and says, well, adios, I guess we'll revisit that if the time is right. No, he doesn't do that. He promises what he starts, he continues, and he completes. And that is our hope. How? By faith. By faith. The result is that we will be sanctified, and in the end, the life you possess today, it will spring up into everlasting life. Remember this, friends. You owe sin nothing. You owe everything to the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we have, that we are not to be perfected by the flesh. We are to be perfected by the Spirit, and the Spirit is, in fact, perfecting us. Oh, help us to trust this. Help us to daily rely on the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, to experience this new life in Christ. Help us to never despair when we do fall, when we do sin, and we sin often. Help us to know that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. And therefore we can confess and repent and get back up and continue to rely on the Spirit to do this in us and for us. We thank you for these eternal promises. May we trust you. Build our faith, I pray. Amen.